Hey, we are finishing up, believe it or not, the book of Ephesians tonight. So if you've got your page, you can turn to it. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 6. And um, we will wrap up that wonderful book that Paul uh, has written. Um, If you're just joining us, I I do need to recapitulate just for a second and just merely say that um, the whole series has been about connecting who you are in Jesus with the way that your Christian life flows from that. In other words, what we've tried to say all semester long in our series called Walking is Called has been that God has called you in grace and therefore you are to live out your life by grace. And that the two go hand in hand. And that to try to say, yeah, you know, I've lived by grace, but now I'm just going to try to live a good, moral, and clean life for the sake of being so maybe that God would get to pay attention to me. Like, we're just saying that that's not what the Bible says. In fact, that's really, really problematic. But what we're trying to say is it's by God's grace. God's grace calls us to Himself. And that grace that calls us is the same sort of grace that changes us. And so that's what we're going to finalize tonight because it's really important that we look at this part of Ephesians to round out the whole book. And you'll see why in just a second. So if you've got your Bible there, Ephesians chapter 6, um, that would be a great place to go. We're going to be looking at chapters 10 through the rest of the book. And so here we go. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. This is God's Word. He's told us that every word of God proves true, that He is a refuge to those who have put their trust or hope in Him. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, we need this to be true tonight. We need the good Word of the Gospel. 
Lord, wherever we're at, whether we have known you for some time or we come in here tonight just because we finally told ourselves we would go to RUF and we feel guilty and we're not sure what to make of you. But Lord, you know our hearts better than we know ourselves. And so we ask that you would speak to us for all of us, Lord, wherever we're at, are in deep need of hearing from you. So open our ears, awaken our dead hearts, that we might hear you, and that you would give us life through your word. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, if you would have grown up around my house, you would know that I have a little sister by the name, the same name as my wife, Laura. And um, one of the things that we used to have as a sibling rivalry was um, I would find myself a lot in the kitchen making uh, sandwiches. And so would she, you know, over the summertime and this sort of thing. And I can remember one time, and this has grown into a a much beloved, excuse me, love affair through the recent years. But um, one of the things that she used to do as a kid, she's probably about five or six, she's four years younger than me. And I can remember high school days, middle school days. It was summer and she was making a, you know, ham sandwich or something in the kitchen. And I would say, because I was the big brother, hey, can I have half of that? And she would look at me like, are you crazy? I just made this. And mom would come in or dad would come in and kind of say, Ryan, leave your sister alone. I say, okay, you know what I mean? And on my way out the kitchen, I would take my finger and stick it square into her sandwich. Yes, spiteful. Now, through the years, that's become a loving thing that we do. If I'm ever at home making a sandwich and I see a fingerprint in it, I know Laura's been around. And I just sort of do the same now. But here's the point when I originally did it. I'll never forget it. In my head, I thought, if I can't have it, I'm going to ruin it for you. I'm going to take all joy out of it, and I'm going to stick my finger in it to where you'll think that's gross, and you won't be able to enjoy it. I'm not saying I'm proud of that. I'm just saying that's what I did as a big brother. I want to tell you that our text today, while it doesn't have anything to do with sandwiches or little sisters, it has everything to do with somebody loving something and wanting something so bad that they can't have it, and they'll do whatever they can to ruin it for the one that possesses it. Let me say that again. Our text deals today with somebody wanting something so badly, knowing that they cannot have it, and they'll do anything that they can to ruin it for the one who does. I'll put more feet to that. If you are in Jesus today, you rest firmly secure in Him. In John chapter 10, Jesus Himself says these words, they are in My hand, I have them in my hand and I will never lose them and no one will ever snatch them out of my hands. And Jesus' greatest enemy, known as the accuser, the devil, the slanderer, Satan, knows this. And because he can't do anything to get you, crams his big bony finger through the bread of your sandwich to try to ruin you for the one who has you. And in this text, Paul is going to say, try all you might, but you cannot touch me. That doesn't mean that there won't be, as he points out, a battle of sorts along the way. In fact, he's saying that there's going to be. But I want you to know, 
in the context of everything I'm saying, that Jesus' grip on you is so secure, all of the forces of hell itself cannot pull you out of it. And you need to know that. And I need to know that tonight. And that is great, fantastic news for sinners like me. What about you? Tonight we're going to look at about four points. I usually do three. You get a bonus because it's the last one, I guess. We're going to look, first of all, at this imagery of spiritual warfare, as Paul is often talking about. The first point we want to look at is basically who we're doing battle with. Secondly, we want to look at how to do battle. Thirdly, why there's a battle that exists in the first place. And then lastly, lastly, the result of that battle. Hint, I've already given away that last point there. But we'll come back to it, okay? So first of all, who we battle. Look with me at your text there. You can kind of see it. It's right there in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and so on, cosmic powers, spiritual forces, and so forth. And what Paul is mentioning here, the answer to this question very simply, is that who is it that we're doing battle against? It's very simply what the text says, that you're doing battle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces and powers. But then it also says that you are up against the schemes of the devil. So in some ways, there's this first line of battle that you're doing with, and then there's the sort of, if you will, general behind it. I'm using warlike mentality because that's the way Paul talks about it. So there's these little, if you will, minions, if you like the, uh, what's the movie? Help me. Despicable Me. There's the little minions, and then there's the dude behind it. And the reality is, is that most of us, when we hear this, we kind of go, okay, <laughs> okay, Ryan, Hold the phone here. Just wait a second here. Um, we live in the 21st century now, and I'm sure that that whole language was really probably good back then. But now, don't we know that that sort of stuff is just fairy tales of sorts? That these sort of things don't really exist? And I actually want to suggest to you, that's, not, that's because you're Western, and you've grown up as a product of Western civilization, that has eschewed that, that you're a product of the Enlightenment. But if you go to Latin America, if you go to Africa, if you go to certain parts of Asia, they have no problem with this text right here at all. It does not sound like a fairy tale. It is the real deal. And I just want to suggest to you that maybe if you're somebody who, maybe you're not a Christian tonight, and you kind of go, that's the reason I can't do the whole Christianity thing, is because it talks about stuff like that. I mean, Look, we're products of a modern world, Ryan, where science has just sort of shown us how everything we can get along without all of that fairy tale myth stuff. And I just want to say very kindly that um, that presents a lot of problems. That worldview that's often known as naturalism or scientific materialism has all sorts of problems with it, not the least of which is for you to maintain it, you will be arrogant over several other people groups in the world. And I just want to humbly submit, are you better than them? Do you have things so figured out? So figured out that because you're a product of the West that you now understand the Bible better. 
I don't think that's the case. I think rather the Scriptures give us a picture of something that can give you a better answer. And that is, there's a world out there that you can't see. And I don't mean like it's up in outer space beyond the stars. The way the Bible talks about these things spatially is that it's all around us. It's almost like you can't keep your, you, you, you're in the midst of it. And the reality is, is that there is, so to speak, a whole onslaught of things that would love to go on to, as the book of 1 Peter says, to devour you. To devour you. You're up against an enemy that desires to rob you out of your Savior's hands, but knows that he can't. But that doesn't mean that there's not a battle still. So secondly, how do we battle? If this is what's going on, then how in the world are we to engage and take this up? Well, first of all, it needs to be mentioned that when you begin to think about the... um, the way the Bible speaks about the devil. It, hang with me on this. Let's just, if we can, get out of your mind the red figure with the horns and the forked tail and the you know, Neptune-like pitchfork. That's just not what's going on. I can remember a, um, well, never mind, I'll, I'll keep going. Usually what happens is, is that most of us, when we think about things like the devil... We fall in one of two camps. We have a tendency to overestimate things. We have a tendency to give it too much of a place in our lives. And we kind of say, oh man, I got a D. I need to exercise that demon of bad grades D. And there's a demon underneath every rock. Does that make sense? So every little bad thing that goes wrong in your life, you're ready to like sprinkle some holy water on it and exercise it. And what I'm saying is, is that's actually not the way the Bible speaks about it. And the other thing, though, is that some of us tend to fall into the camp where we underemphasize that, and then we were just like the person I was describing, where you just kind of say, none of that really, really exists at all. I mean, isn't that a bit cartoonish and all? I mean, that's good for Gary Larson in the far side. But for me, you know, that doesn't really happen. And listen to what C.S. Lewis, a man from whom I get a lot of this tonight, makes. He says this. He says that both of those positions are quite problematic. Now, I must set this up. He says this in a book called The Screwtape Letters, which is a satire from one senior devil mentoring a lower devil, so to speak, about how to tempt people. And he goes on and he says this, We hail the materialist and the magician with the same delight. Now the point is what? If you've seen the movie, The Usual Suspects, there's a line in there, some of you might have seen it, where he says, the devil's greatest trick was convincing the world that he never existed. And both of those give rise to the point of that comment. So when we think about how we do battle, first of all, you've got to be honest. And you've got to be honest about things. If you fall into one of those camps, you need to find this row the way about the Scriptures. Think about it. Now, you can go into this little um, armor stuff here. Think about it. Uh, It talks about the hat, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and so on and so forth. And all that 
um, is very important. I just can't go into every single... I think there's about seven things in there if you include prayer that you can talk about. And I, I can't go into each one of those. If you want, um, I'll give you this. You can read a uh, 16th century pastor. His name was William Gurnall. Uh, he wrote a 1,200-page book on eight verses in the Bible. If you want to go read that over the summer, there's some light reading for you. Just have at it. You can know all about that sort of stuff. No, I did not read that before I prepared this sermon. But I want you to know something that Gurnall does point out. How do we do battle? If you understand biblically the picture that the Bible gives us of this person that is called the devil or the Satan, it's a, it's a name for an accuser. And I want you to know this. The chances of some fiery, ghoulish looking thing appearing into the material world to scare you when you sleep or to get you is most likely not going to happen. It might. I can't predict these sort of things. I don't know what else is out there. I'm trying to be humble about it in some ways. I'm saying it's most likely not going to happen. But here's what I can guarantee is going to happen. The enemy's capital, what the enemy uses, is in his name. He's the accuser. And he will go after you with his capital which are lies. Gurnall puts it perfectly like this. That the enemy, enemy leaves you not with fangs in your body, but with lies in your heart. And I want to spend a moment right there with lies in your heart. Here's what I want you to know what's at the heart of what is called spiritual warfare. It's a battle for those things that are true. It always is. They're always the thing, it's always a battle for things that are true about you and about God. And if you look at these seven or eight things here that are mentioned, they are meant to be taken up. But I want you to know it's it has more to do with the thing, not the so let me just put it like this. Paul wants you to not focus on the belt of truth. He wants you to read it like this. The belt of truth. The helmet of salvation. The breastplate of righteousness. That's the thing behind it. And here's why. All of those things are yours already. They come to you as a benefit of Christ. In other words, When you become a Christian, those things are freely and fully at your disposal. And they're already yours. And and the reason we know that, look at the text. It says right there, stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened. If you were to look at this in the original Greek, I'm sorry to do this, but you must know this. This is saying, this is something that you already have. You don't have to go out and purchase it. You don't have to pray enough to go get it. You don't have to be a good, holy enough person to go win it. It's already yours. So today, if you're a Christian, you have these things. Right now. Right now. And you go, wait a second, Ryan. Nice try. Uh, 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 I read verse 11. And it says what? Put on. So now you've now you got a problem, Ryan, because you're telling me that I already got it. And... Paul's saying, put it on. And I'm saying, no. 
There's not a problem at all with that. Here's why. It means you've got it. And the way to do battle is that you have to begin to access it. You have to begin to live as though those things that are objectively true about you, that they are absolutely true about you, you have to begin to appropriate those things to your life and into your heart. Think about it like this. You get, you open the mail one day, it's on formal letterhead, and it says, Mr. Ryan Anderson, your great uncle from, you know, Sussex, England or something, has just died, the guy that you don't know, and he's left you a billion dollars in this bank account. Now look, they send you the account records, they're right there in front of you, and you see your name on that account, and you go, hmm, that's nice. Boom, it's not true. No worries, just going to continue living my life like it is. And what Paul is saying is this, you have all the resources that you need, and it's like you won't go to the bank and draw on out. You won't, just go, you won't go get the credit card or whatever, the debit card, and start using it. And he's saying the way that you do that is that you have to know that there are things that are absolutely true about you, and yet at the same time, part of what it means to do battle is to appropriate those things to you because this is why. The enemy's capital is lies, is untruths. And all of these things are absolutely true about you. And that's why he says, take them up. Because here's what the enemy's going to do. He's going to tell you that you are not loved in Jesus. And you think, belt of truth, that is not right. He is going to tell you that you're only worthy when some boy loves you. Or when some girl goes out with you. And he's going to say you're nothing until then. And he's going to attack your identity. He's going to say Jesus is not enough for you. And I'm telling you, the ground of spiritual warfare is far more that than it is a boogeyman-like character showing up in your life. Does that make any sense, y'all? Does that make any sense what I'm talking about? I know it's complex, but the point is, is that this isn't so hokey after all. This is the real deal stuff of life. Does that make sense? Here's the why, third point, of why this even happens. Paul says it right here. He says that I want you to pray for me and all the saints that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Look, if you have been with us all semester long, you know that Paul has talked about the mystery of the gospel starting back in verse chapter 1 and in chapter 3. And what is the mystery of the gospel? Here it is. That God in Christ has come into this world and what was broken and torn up and dismantled and disfigured in the garden in Genesis 3, what came into the world in the figure of the enemy named Satan who came in as the figure of a snake, here he is saying, God did not say to you that. He does not want you to know God. And then boom, sin permeates into all areas of the cosmos right down to the human heart, bringing fracturing and ruining, as it were, everything. And in that exact same moment, in that exact same moment, God says 
to the man, to the woman, and to the serpent, the day is coming where your head will become like a gnat's serpent. And the heel of this woman will crush the very cranial structures that you have. He will smash your head. The day is coming. And in the person of Jesus, that work was complete. And in light of all of that, I'm still on what the Gospel is. Our God in the person of Jesus is putting the whole world back together. And that is what Paul talks about in verse 10 of chapter 1 when he says that it is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, all things in heaven and in earth. Do you see the picture? That everything that was fractured and torn apart in the garden is now being put back together, including our own hearts, but the very world itself. And for that Gospel message to go out is nothing less than territory reclamation that the enemy thinks belongs to him. That is why the battle happens. Because the enemy knows he's on the losing team. And it's the first inning. And he's, he's going down. That's the, sto- that's the way the story ends. You get to know the end of the story before it has happened. And guess what? The fairy tale is true. The king rescues the queen. He makes beautiful the bride. That bride that was once a whore, he makes beautiful. And he says, I'm perfecting you. And that's you. And that's me. So I just hit up the fourth point. The result of the battle, the good guys win. If you think I'm lying, look right there in verse 14. What does he say? Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And the reason he says stand therefore is because all the above, the whole letter is true. Let me drive this home. Throughout the picture of Scripture, after Jesus has lived His life, died on the cross, rose again from the grave, spent 40 days on the earth afterwards, He ascends into the heavens. And when Paul and the other writers talk about Jesus' reign, they talk about it, if you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, about Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It is what he talks about in chapter 2 here, where he says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies. That's exactly what that means. Remember we talked about we're united with Jesus, and so where Jesus sits on the throne presently, you sit there with him. But do you know what happened once in Acts chapter 6 and 7? There was a man named Stephen, and he was being stoned. And as he was dying and breathing his last... Do you know what he saw? He saw Jesus. And you know what Jesus was doing? Jesus wasn't sitting. It's the only time in the Scriptures that it says that Jesus was standing. And He was standing for Stephen. 
And I want you to know the reason that the battle will be won for you is because that self-same Jesus stands for you. He stands for you. I'll put a further point on it. On the cross, this good King Jesus had no armor. None. And for you and for me, for all of the selfishness in our heart, for all of the wickedness that we dream of, everything was laid on Him. On Him. It's why the song says, it, it was my sin that held Him there. Unprotected. Utterly unprotected. The full fury of all that was wicked laid upon His, on his, on his shoulders. For you and for me. So that we would never, ever have to endure that. And that we get the armor of God because He Himself went defenseless on our behalf. I just want to leave you with this. We wind down. We wind down our semester. It would be supremely naive to think that all the things that we have spoken of all semester, that it was just going to be easy. That the Christian life was just going to be easy. And so that's why Paul ends there. Listen, I'll say it like this. I don't want you to just see this. I want to ask you, do you see it for you? Do you see it for you? Do you see this king standing for you? You you can. You can. There's nothing magical about it. He can be yours. And so I'll close here. Embrace Him. Embrace Him. Whether it be for the first time or whether it's for the billionth time, all of us need to further embrace Him. So we embrace Him. We see His beauty. We see the love that He has. And we embrace Him. Let's pray.